The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen, amen. If you got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. You can flip those open. While you're flipping there, I have a question for you to think about. The question is this. Why would, why would a perfect an eternal God who lives outside of any brokenness, outside of any pain, outside of any suffering, outside of the aches and pains and the groans of what it is to be a human. Anyone got some aches, pains, and groans? Is that just me? I'm, okay, you know. So, so why would a perfect God who, who lives apart from all of the pain that it is to be a human being, why would a perfect God uh, who has all pleasure in the universe, who is perfectly satisfied within himself, within the Trinity, separated from everything hard, why would he choose to step off and out of that place of comfort and to step into humanity and to be among us? Um, maybe, maybe you guys have figured that one out. That one, still, that one still completely blows me away. And even more so, why would that same God not only just come and dwell among us, but actually choose to take on all that it is to be a human, to actually partake of humanity, to wear weakness, to experience weakness, to experience limitation, and to put himself under the curse of humanity to feel what it feels like to struggle, to feel what it feels like to come up against human limitations to not be able to command a host of angels, to not be able to snap his, his fingers and command power? Why would God give up all of that, everything that we in our deep souls long for? Why would he give up all of that in order to become one of us? It's an intense question, and, and, and maybe if it's not intense enough for you, let me think about it like this. I was trying to think of, of an analogy that maybe would help. Um, imagine for, for a minute that... You are, are not merely just a human choosing to roll around in, in a pigsty because that actually, as weird and bizarre as that would be, that actually doesn't quite embody what God becoming a man. Let's just say for a minute that you had this desire to somehow um, redeem a, 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 a pig sty and these pigs. You wanted, to, you wanted to redeem them. Well, in order to do something that would even come close to what Christ did in becoming a man, you would have to literally become one of those swine eat what swine eat, roll around in the mud like a swine rolls around in the mud, to be mocked by the swine themselves, to be despised and mistreated like the swine are despised and mistreated, and ultimately live for a singular purpose, and that one purpose is to be slaughtered for the redemption of those, those swines. They say that's ridiculous. Well, of course it's ridiculous because you would never do it. You would never do it because redeeming pigs is no value to you. But as ridiculous as that is, think about how even more ridiculous and insane it is that a perfect God who is in complete perfection in all of eternity would, would choose to become a flawed and broken human. Maybe this is lost on us because we're just used to hearing it in Christianity, but, but this is one of the most stunning and magnificent realities in the Bible, that God would choose to become a man. And we're not the first person that people to ask this question. In fact, um, the, the idea of how God was a man and what that actually looked like and why God was a man is something that was debated really uh, for the first thousand years of Christian history. In fact, it's still debated 
today. Uh, in fact, someone named uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, okay, obviously we don't have names like that nowadays, but there was a guy named the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he actually wrote a book that has a really intriguing title, um, and the title was in Latin, and it was Cur Deus Homo, which means why the God-man? Why the God-man? That's a really good question. And he's essentially asking the same question I am. Why would God become a man? And, and what exactly would that look like? And how does God become a man? When he wrote this book uh, back in uh, about the 11th century, there was a lot of argument at that time about what it actually meant for God to become a man. See, some people had all kinds of crazy ideas. Some people thought that God becoming a man uh, was nothing more than really God sort of wearing a skin suit. He didn't really truly become a human in every sense of the word, but he actually just was, was divinity wrapped in skin. And that, we know that that's, that's not true. Uh, people were saying things like um, Jesus was a full man, wasn't God, and then at the age of 30, God sort of came in and inhabited him. And we know that that's not true, true either. And there was all these arguments about what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, that, that Jesus didn't actually atone for sin because he wasn't really God. He was just a good man, and this good man really was just giving a good example for his followers on how to sacrificially die for someone else. All these arguments were going around. So this guy, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he wrote this book called Why the God-Man, and he asked the same question. Why would God become a man, and exactly what happened when God became a man? And he really laid the foundation, the groundwork for what Christian evangelicals today believe about how God was a man. And what really it is, what we believe is, is that it's not that God was just kind of wearing a suit of skin, or that Jesus wasn't really God. We believe that the Bible teaches that God was fully when Jesus, when Jesus was incarnate, he was fully God and fully man. He was both. And that what Jesus did was he did not give up his divinity, but he added humanity into it. It was an addition. And then he chose to live a life resting on his humanity rather than resting on his divinity. It was a choice. He could have accessed his divinity, but he chose to live out a life as a man, and this is what uh, this guy, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was really uh, laying down. Now, what could possibly drive Jesus to want to do that, to add humanity to his divinity, to walk around as God, but walking as a man, to experience everything that we experience? Why would he want to do that? And the answer is really complex and really simple. The answer is, is that he did it because he's the ultimate brother to you and I. He's the ultimate brother to you and I. And he did it to show what it meant to be the ultimate brother to our brothers and sisters. We're in a series right now, as I said, called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Okay? And what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the six of the main things that... Um, the New Testament authors kind of use to describe the church. Uh, so we've talked about the church as a body. Um, that was in 1 Corinthians 12. We talked about the church as a temple last week. Jeremy, Jeremy taught uh, on that. And, and this week, we're going to talk about the subject of the church as a family. Okay, and I was really excited about this one. I, I'm really excited about this, this teaching because I thought, wow, this is going to be great. Talk about the church as a family because we are, right? We're a family. And everybody who, who's spent any time in Christianity knows that the church is a family. It's supposed to be a family. So I started Googling and, and looking at all of the verses that had to do with family in the New Testament. And what was really funny is what I kind of ended up coming across was different than what I thought I would. 
Um, now, I found some verses about how we're family and about how, you know, there's fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers, and, 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 and those are maybe a teaching for another day. But what I really was stunned by was just how many times in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the church is referred to not just as family, but as brothers and sisters. It seems like the main, the primary thing that both Christ and the apostles referred to the church at was, in the King James, brethren. You hear Paul say it over and over again in all of his epistles. He says, greet the brethren, greet the brothers, greet, and implied in that as brothers and sisters. You saw Jesus, even after his ascension, he tells uh, Mary, he says, go tell my brothers, go tell my brothers about what you've seen here, that I've ascended or that I've resurrected. Go tell my brothers. This idea of brotherhood, it's really, um, it's really quite obvious in the New Testament. 229 times in the New Testament, uh, the word brethren or brotherhood comes up, and most of those are in regards to the Christian family, not just a blood relation. So the idea of brotherhood and family, it's woven tightly all throughout the New Testament. But in order to understand that, and I, really wanna, I wanna zoom in on that tonight. What, it, what does it mean to be brothers and sisters with one another? To zoom in on that, we need to first understand who our first brother was. And as I was digging and as I was studying, I realized, you know, there's a linchpin here in understanding what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And that linchpin is understanding the fact that Jesus is our brother. Did you know that? Did you know Jesus is our brother? Anybody? Did you not? Okay, I, I realized that that doesn't really get talked about very much in the church. I mean, I've, I think of Jesus as being all kinds of things. I think about him being our master, our Lord. I think about him being, you know, um, the, the vine and we are the branches. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. He is the king and we are the kingdom. We are the temple and he is the priest. He is the chief priest and we are the priesthood. These are all things that, you know, we are an army and he is the commander. We are the body and he is the head. All of these things are things the New Testament refers to is in regards to our relationship with Christ. Christ, but the one I hardly ever hear about is the fact that Jesus is our brother, and I started thinking, why is that? And then I started looking for verses about it, and I realized it's explicit. It's there. It's clear. It's obvious. In fact, it's not only obvious, it's really well stated over and over and over again that Jesus is our brother, and I thought, why do we never talk about that? And here's why I think we never talk about it. I think we never talk about it because it makes us feel kind of weird. Does it make you feel weird when I say that? It makes me feel weird. It makes me feel weird because I feel like what it's saying is that somehow Jesus and I are the same. It makes me feel weird because I feel like somehow it's like putting me on the same plane as Jesus, like we're equals, okay? Um, but that's really a misunderstanding. Jesus referred to himself as all sorts of things in the New Testament, and every one of those things that he referred to himself as is important. And there is not one single picture that can embody all of our relationship with Christ. We need all of them. Yes, we are the bride. Yes, we are the kingdom. Yes, we are the stones. Yes, we are the branches. And yes, we are the brother of Christ. And we are doing a disservice by not understanding exactly what that means. So tonight what we're going to run after is we're going to run after this idea of how are we to be brothers and sisters with each other based on how he has been a brother to us. And I want to just spend the night really kind of unpacking what that means for Jesus to be our brother. So before we do that, and before we get into our text, I, I need to give some prereqs because you guys are probably thinking, 
Okay, is this like Mormonism? Where are we getting at? Okay, so let me just tell you four things, and this is where your outline starts. So if you have your, your outline, um, and, and I'm going to warn you guys, tonight's going to be a little theological, so I need you to turn your brains on, okay? And we're going to look at Hebrews, which is one of the hardest books to exposit. Um, so let's, let's get our brains moving. I gave you an outline, so hopefully you won't get lost. I'll have slides up on the screen. Try to track with me here. But, but before we get into the text, I want to quickly say four things that Jesus being a brother is not, okay? Four things that Jesus being our brother is not, okay? And it's important that we say these. The first thing is uh, J- Jesus being our brother does not mean he is a created being. Okay, there's, I don't know if you guys have read this, but in the New Testament, time and time again, it calls Jesus the firstborn. Okay, and we'll talk about that tonight. That's a really amazing thing. Jesus is the firstborn of God and the firstborn of many, referring to us. Some people, some cults, some apostate Christians take that and they go, oh, Jesus must be a created being. Wrong. He's not. Because they don't understand what the word firstborn means. The word firstborn means essentially that he is the preeminent one. It's not firstborn in the sense that he was the first created person. It's firstborn in the sense that he has the title to the family. Okay, Uh, for instance, was Jacob the firstborn? No, but was he the firstborn? Yes. (laughs) He was not the firstborn in sense of blood relation or in, in the sense of his birth order. He was the firstborn because he got the blessing. He was the firstborn in that he became the new patriarchal figure for the family of Abraham. He became the father of the Jewish people, having 12 sons being the 12 tribes. That's kind of what it's referring to. If you want to look some of that up, you can check that out. I put it, uh, some stuff in your notes there on that. But he is not a created being. Firstborn simply means that he is the preeminent one. The problem is we import into family, the idea of family, we import all of our Western thinking and in the way that we think of a family uh, today. But that's not necessarily how families operated then. They lived in a honor-shame, patriarchal society, which means that whoever was in charge of the family was in charge of the family. So if the firstborn was the one who was given sort of the rights to the family, he really would be the patriarchal figure of the whole family. That's what the New Testament is saying when it says Jesus is the firstborn. He's the first Christian. Well, how can he be a Christian? He's Christ. Well, he's the first one. We'll see that. We'll go on. So number one, he's not a created being. And if you want to read on your own for that, Colossians 1, this is easy to remember. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1, John 1. Those are the Christological verses in the new t- chapters in the New Testament. You want to find out who Christ is? Look at all of those chapters and they all start with one. So it's easy. The second thing that Jesus being our brother does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus became equal with humans. He did not cease to be God, okay? He did not cease to be God. He added humanity to his divinity. Does everyone understand what that means? Um, I mean, we don't fully understand what it means, but does everyone get that? He did not cease to become God. It's not as though the Trinity went from three to two for 33 years, because then it wouldn't be the Trinity. The Trinity never ceased to be the Trinity. Jesus was always God the whole time, but yet he added his humanity and he chose to live as a human, still remaining God, okay? Number three, and you guys got to know this stuff because these Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, don't they? I had them come to my door the other day and I just was, I was in like my sweatpants and I was not in the mood to, to engage them, but they do. They come to your door and they're going to tell you this kind of stuff and you need to know why, okay? Number four, Um, Jesus being our brother does not mean that we can become like Jesus. Okay, now, i got to explain that a little bit. We can become 
like Jesus, and we will become like Jesus, but we cannot ever get to the place that Jesus is at in terms of his power and authority. This is what the Mormons believe. They believe that Jesus was a created being, the brother of Lucifer, and that he worked his way up to becoming uh, this level or this position, uh, and that we can do the same thing if we just do enough, okay, and we'll get our own planet and stuff. That's not true. There is one God, and Jesus is one member of that Trinitarian God. And we will never be equal as Christ, although we can be like him. Okay? Everybody got those four things? Now that we got that out of the way and you guys don't think I'm a heretic, let's talk about what Jesus being our brother is. Okay? So Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is probably one of the most clear, in my opinion, one of the most clear chapters about what it actually means for Jesus to be our our brother. So I'm going to read it really quick. And then we're going to go back verse by verse, and we're going to talk about uh, six things that we can learn about Jesus being our brother. And then we're going to take some application from that and go home and go to bed, okay? So here we go, starting in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? He's quoting Psalm chapter 8 here, just so you know. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. End quote. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is man, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, being Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, the next two verses, three verses, are really the synopsis of everything we've just read. If nothing made sense up to that point, it didn't make sense to me either the first time I read it. So the next few verses are the synopsis, the thesis of, of really what he's getting at. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that, help, that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made, listen, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, now again, Hebrews is one of the hardest books to exposit because there's so much Old Testament in there. And there's so much, uh, there's just so much to unpack. But he's essentially, there's essentially six things we can learn about Jesus as our brother from this text. And we're just going to go, uh, you know, go through it one by one. And you have your outline there. So the first one is this. The first one is that Jesus 
is our brother in that he is the, the uh, progenitor of our family. He is the progenitor. Now you're thinking, why are you using a word that nobody knows what it means? Um, I'm using that word very intentionally, and I don't apologize for it. I'm using that word because I actually think it's the best word to describe what Jesus being our brother means. Okay, it's a very intentional word, and I'll explain what it means. Take a look at verse 5. Let's get a little, a little feel for the, the context here of our text. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Hebrews is a book about the supremacy of Christ, okay? It's a book about, um, about how Jesus is better than Judaism. Jesus is better than angels. If you really want to know who Jesus is, read the book of Hebrews, and then read it again, and then read it one more time, okay? Because you're going to see who Christ is in the pages of this book. And so verse 5 is essentially saying that, that where is Jesus in terms of, of his, his supremacy or his priority in regards to angels, Okay, this is kind of what he's going to get into. So, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world. Now, I would think that the next sentence out of his mouth would be, it's not to angels that he subjected the world, it's to Christ, right? But that's actually not what he says. What, he, what he's going to say is, it's to you and I. Now, when I first read that, I went, oh, that's interesting. He didn't subject the world to angels, he subjected it to us. Okay, so read on. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Oh, wait, which world? Which world? The world to come. The world that's not here yet. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, of which we are speaking, verse 6. And then he says, it has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm chapter 8. It has been testified in Psalm chapter 8, and then he begins to quote Psalm chapter 8. Okay, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And put, listen, put everything in subjection t- under his feet. Now, what is Psalm chapter 8? We won't go there, but let me just explain it to you. Psalm chapter 8 is this really cool psalm where the psalmist is, is evidently looking up at the sky, and he's looking at the stars, and he's thinking to himself, wow, God made a really cool universe. It's really magnificent. And then it's almost as though as he's doing that, he takes a look down, and he starts looking at the people around him, and he goes, God, why did you give all that to us? We're like a bunch of boneheads, right? Like we can't even handle... We can't handle the stewardship of creation. Why have you given it to us to do? It's kind of what he says. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? You created the stars and the moon and the heavens and all these beautiful things, and then you chose a bonehead race, humanity, to be your partners in stewardship. And he specifically uses the word subjection. And when he uses that word, he's trying to trigger your brain back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have, what, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, etc., etc. When God created man, he created man with the intention of us being stewards or of having dominance over this world. That was the intentional, original design for human beings, is that we would steward the world, that we would be this family of God and this family that stewards creation. Uh, but unfortunately, we know the story, Genesis chapter 3, Adam, who was, listen, listen, Adam was our progenitor. Okay, what's a progenitor, Sam? Okay, progenitor is the first of something. The very first. Adam meaning man, was the first man. He was the progenitor of the human race. He was the first person. And God created him with the very specific purpose of him 
partnering with God in the rule and dominion of all of the earth. And God's plan was, God's intention was, is that Adam and Eve would be fruitful and multiply, and that there would be a race of people that would partner with God in world dominance, not in a way that, 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 that rapes the world of its uh, resources like we do, but in a way that actually cultivates the earth, ending in this eternal city, which was God's kind of plan. But then Adam, our progenitor, he threw it all down the toilet, didn't he? He disobeyed God, and through the fall, now we have this, the, he shattered our hopes of being these, the, 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 the stewards of this world. So this is all stuff that the author of Hebrews is trying to, to bring to your attention. And when he's quoting Psalm chapter 8, what is he trying to get at here? Well, keep reading. So he finishes quoting Psalm chapter 8, and then he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him. Now, here's one of the most confusing things about Hebrews. It, it says him and he and he and him and him, and he doesn't always say exactly who he and him and him and he is. Okay? So we kind of have to, I'm going to help you a little bit because I've done the work. Okay? I'm going to help you understand who the he's and him's are, and I'll, I'll insert who he's talking about. Okay. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, who is him, it's the human race. It's mankind. He's saying God put everything under subjection to mankind, as we saw in Genesis. And then he, being God, left nothing outside of man's control. At present, here, here's where he's going, but, but wait a minute. Something's wrong, though. Because at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's saying God gave mankind the role of, of, of being uh, the, the one to subject creation, but mankind is not in that role because we blew it. But, verse 9, but we see him. Now, who is him? We see Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and we'll talk about that, namely Jesus. This is the first time the word Jesus is used in the book of Hebrews, and it's meant to pack a punch, okay, because he's been talking about Jesus for the last one and a half chapters, um, but this is the first time he actually drops the bomb that this is the one he's been talking about as the supreme one. And he's saying that even though this, this, this role of, of dominance was given to mankind and Adam, our progenitor, blew it for the whole human race, there is a new, listen, there's a new progenitor. There's a new chief of the human race. There's a new representative of mankind that is not Adam, but is the new Adam. Read on. For a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The first point that the author of Hebrews here is trying to make about Jesus being our brother is that Jesus is the new representative of a new humanity. And that humanity is the family of God. See, Sam, that, what big deal? This is a bunch of nerd theology stuff. It's a really big deal. You know why it's a big deal? It's, just, it's a big deal for the same reason that everyone is bored out of their minds at church. I'm talking about our church, of course. Let me tell you why people are bored at church. People are bored at church because they come and they hear, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, and then they go home. Christianity is a lot more than I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. You know that? Christianity is this idea that God is creating a new human race 
with a new progenitor who is not Adam, who failed miserably, didn't lead his wife, hid from God, blew it big time, did exactly what we would do. Now there's a new humanity, and that new humanity is going to fulfill what the garden was, was meant to be in the first place, to rule and to reign and to cultivate and to create a kingdom forever that's physical and tangible and fun and exciting, and we'll explore and we'll work and we'll do the things that we love in life in a kingdom that goes forever because we have a new representative as human beings, and it's Jesus Christ. I just dropped the mic. See, like, you know what I'm saying? That's why that's exciting. We have a new representative that has created a new human race, and we're in it. And there is no death for us. This is what our brother did for us. He came and he represented us. You know, we talk about Adam being our father, and in some ways he is, but really, you know, have you ever heard the expression, God has no grandchildren? He doesn't. It's true. God has no grandchildren. We are all God's kids. So Adam is really a lot less like our father and a lot more like our patriarchal progenitive representative. He represented humanity. And the Bible, you know, the Bible actually says, it says that you are in one of two families. Did you know that? You're either in the family of Adam or you're in the family of Christ. And if you are in the family of Adam, God is going to destroy everything that that family has destroyed. If you are in the family of Christ, you will rule and reign as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Brothers to the Son of God Christ, the preeminent one. Isn't that exciting? Saying, what does that have to do with family? I thought we were talking about family. It has everything to do with family because Jesus made some pretty intense claims. And he made some pretty intense claims that put the family of God light years above in importance to our physical blood family. Jesus, your brother and your mom, they're looking for you. Jesus turns around and says, who is my brother and my mom? Talking about my blood relatives? He says, I'll tell you who my family is. My family is who does the will of the Father. My family is those who, who, who obey me as Lord. <laughs> That's my family. That's a stronger tie. That, that means, I can't overstate this. If you look around the room right now, and a lot of you maybe are strangers, and a lot of you maybe don't, don't know each other you know, very well at all, but if you look around the room, and if all of us are, are here because of the blood of Christ, then we will spend eternity with each other. Forever. You are united in a deeper way than you will ever possibly be united with your physical family, unless your physical family is part of God's family. It's a really big deal. Jesus is starting a new race of humanity that will live forever. That's pretty exciting. That's kind of a big deal. The second thing that Jesus is as our brother, and this, this kind of ties in, look at verse 10. He is also our pioneer. He's our pioneer of salvation. Look at verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Okay, who's he? I got to tell you. It's the Father, okay? Okay, it's the Father. For it was fitting that the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. You ever heard that song? Many sons to glory. I don't remember how it goes. Uh, but there's a song that has that line in it. Many sons. This is his purpose. This is his purpose in sending Christ to become a man, was to bring many, not just random people, but sons, sons to glory. You, he thinks of you as his sons, as his daughters. He's bringing you to glory. That's the purpose. 
So, bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, who's the founder? It's Jesus. And you might underline that word, because that's a pretty cool word. Okay, so what he's saying is, for it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's making the founder perfect. Now that word founder is worth noting. It's the Greek word archegos. Archegos. And archegos has many, uh, you could define it many ways, but it's saying that Jesus is our founder. He is our pioneer. He is our leader. He is our champion. He is our author. He is our captain. Those are all ways of translating the word archegos. What it means is, is that he's not the one in the back of the pack leading from behind. He's the one in the front. He was the first one to conquer death. He was the first one to live by faith completely, to live the perfect life, to run the perfect race. He is the author of the faith life, the faith reality. He's the first one to do it. What you're doing right now in trying to live out this existence as a son or daughter of God, Jesus did it already. He already did it. He did it for two reasons. One was to be the perfect example, and two was so that he could give you his trophy. So that he could impute his perfect life over the top of your terrible life. You ran a marathon in seven hours. He ran it in two and a half. And he gave you his time card. Okay? He ran the perfect race. Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 2. And I'll put it on the screen here for the sake of time. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 1 through 3, starting 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the, okay, what's that word? Founder? Same word. Archegos, it's actually archegon, but it's the same root word. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, I like the ESV translation. It's the one we use here. It's really good, but I think it gets it wrong on this one, okay? And here's why. It says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That kind of makes it sound like Jesus is like kind of coaching us along, perfecting our faith. That's not what this is saying. Look at what the NASB says. The NASB says that fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. How is that different? Well, one is saying that he's the author and perfecter of your faith, which is, yes, true. Okay, yeah, it's true. But this is saying that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. He did it first. He perfected what it looks like to live a faithful life before you. He's the ultimate faith liver. The ultimate faith-filled person is Jesus. He is our pioneer. He was the first one to do it. He lived the perfect life for us. Isn't that cool? He's the pioneer. And he imputes that to it. He didn't cut corners. I was running the other day up on Roxanne, and I was getting tired. And and I realized, you know, I just kind of want to get back to my car. And so I started, I started realizing there's these little ditch-off trails that would get me down quicker. And I stopped, I kind of got off the road, and I just started taking these little shortcuts, shortcut, shortcut, shortcut. And I was thinking about this sermon, and I was processing in my head about this sermon, and I was thinking, you know, Jesus never took any shortcuts in his race of the faith. He never took any shortcuts. He could have. It's very human-like to take shortcuts, isn't it? It's a very human thing to do. It's a creaturely thing to do, to go, man, I just, I'm, I'm just tired. Can we just... Go straight home. We do it with putting the kids to bed sometimes. We're like, can we skip story time tonight? And just put the kids straight to bed because I'm tired. 
shortcuts. Jesus didn't, listen to me, Jesus didn't take a single shortcut in living the perfect human life. Not a single one. He did it perfectly. He did every aspect of it perfectly so that he could impute and give you that perfect life. Every ounce of it he did perfectly. He was the perfect brother in that he gave us his perfection. Number three, he is the personalization of God taking on human life. I'm kind of regretting doing it. I, I use the word personalization because it started with P, but I actually think it's really confusing. Uh, so what I'm really trying to say here, these pastors have this weird OCD thing where sometimes we have to make all of our headings start with the same letter. It's really annoying. Um, okay, but anyways, what I'm really trying to say here is that Christ became counterparts with us. He became a human fully. Okay, take a look at, take a look at verse, verse 9. Actually, let's skip. Take a look at verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share... Okay, that's that word koinonia, fellowship. Okay, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He had fellowship with us in that he experienced exactly what we experience as human beings to the fullest degree. Okay, he became... Man, he became like us, experienced what it is to live in flesh and blood to the fullest degree. Uh, my, my daughter, uh, well, she was younger at the time. I remember Myla, my oldest, when she was just like one year old. And uh, I just remember like, she always wanted up. She's always wanted to be held, which I love holding her. But sometimes when you're busy, you know, trying to do something and she's like, pick me up. I get, remember getting really annoyed, like, oh, what do you always want to be picked up? Okay, pick her up. And then I remember it, it dawned on me, you're like, Sam, get on the floor. And see what it looks like to be a foot tall. <laughs> it's terrible. To be a foot tall is terrible. I, I mean, you get down on the floor, everything's up there. Everything's for big people. I mean, the countertops are up there. The food's up there. The TV's up there. Everything's up there. And nothing is down here except for crumbs uh, and things, crayons that you can eat, you know? And that's what they do. So, you know, everything's up there. And I, remember, I just remember thinking, that's exactly what God does. He, he, he breaks the paradigm that power corrupts absolutely, and he chooses to step out of his power and to step into the humility of what it is to be a human being, to get down on his hands and knees through his incarnation and to become like us so that he can relate with us in every way, so that he can live this perfect life. He became man so that he can see what it's like to be a man. It's exactly what he says. He partook of the same things. He did it. He became like us. So the first thing that he became like us in is our limitations. He, he, cho he chose to, to limit himself like us because he wanted to, to relate with us in our limitations. But he also became like us in his sanctification. He became like us in that he had to learn to trust God. And you're thinking, how can he be sanctified? Isn't he perfect? Well, when he became a human, he had to grow up. He had to learn. He had to learn to trust God. He was never sinful. He never sinned, but he had to learn to trust God, just like you and I do. When you pray to God and you say, Lord, it's so hard for me to trust you, it's so hard for me to do this, this thing called faith and live this life of faith and lean into you every day, you know what Jesus says? I know. I did it. I experienced the limitation of being a human. I experienced the process of sanctification being a human, which is the process of burning away our impurities and purifying our faith. He says, I experienced all that. I went through it. 
He shared with us in our tribulation. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, he had to be made like us, his brothers, in every respect, every respect, including suffering, including pain, including harm. He experienced more pain on this earth than most of us will ever experience. And he experienced more pain on the cross than a billion non-believers would experience in hell for an eternity. Think about that. He experienced more pain as a human than any human will ever experience. Why? Because he is our brother who chose to go before us and to do all things for us. Aren't you glad Jesus is your brother? Man, I'm so glad. Not only did he share with us in our tribulation, and this is important, he also, he also shared with us in, by his invitation. One of the coolest verses in this text. Look at verse 11. He says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that could probably be translated Father. In other words, both us and Christ, we, we have the same Father. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. It's one of the most stunning, that, that one stopped me in my tracks when I read this verse. It's one of the most stunning verses for me. He's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. He's not ashamed of you. Have you ever been that guy or that girl on the team that everyone wishes wasn't on the team because you're terrible at it? I mean, we're all terrible at something. I remember going golfing once with some friends that were really good at golfing, and they probably wished I wasn't there because everyone wanted to play through. Jesus is not ashamed of you. In fact, if he was ashamed of you, he would not have stepped out of eternity into absolute torment for you to bring many sons to glory. He's not ashamed of you. He is not in any way ashamed for you to be his brother or his sister. In fact, it's quite, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Romans, uh, let me see if I can find it. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. I was not ashamed of you anymore. You're his son. You're his kid. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Isn't it interesting how many times it says we need to suffer with him? You picking up on that? It says it over and over and over again, if we suffer with him. Do you know that brothers are born in the trenches? What unites us to Christ is that we have both suffered, that we both will suffer some people think that it, it, Christians should never have to suffer. It's actually very wrong. Christ suffered more than any of us ever will. And it actually says, let's see if I can find it. It actually says, oh, I lost it. It says that we should long to suffer with him. I can't find it. Here it is, 1 Peter 4.13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with his exaltation. He suffered with us, and we find camaraderie around that, that we suffered together. Number four, he is our brother in that he is our propitiation for sins. I I don't have time to get into this point, so um, I'm going to give you some homework. Go and look up what propitiation means. It's an amazing word, um, and I don't think we should shy away from using it. Uh, so he's our propitiation. It basically means that he satisfied our need for atonement. 
that we were, we were broken uh, and at the, at the need, um, we had a need for us, to, our sins to be paid for, and that Jesus drank that cup in full, in totality. He drank every cup of God's wrath. This was one of the main things that they were arguing about in the first millennia of Christian church was, what did Jesus do on the cross? What did he actually do? Was he appeasing the devil? Was he just paying a ransom to the devil? No. Jesus, you have to understand the Trinity to get this, but Jesus was paying a ransom to the Father. The Father is just, and the Father must bring retribution for all sin and all brokenness in the world. And the only way for you and I to become sons and daughters, to become brothers to Christ, is for the cup of God's perfect righteous wrath and judgment to be drank in totality, and Jesus drank every drop. He is the propitiation for us. He is the satisfaction of God's wrath. He is such, such a brother that he would truly do that for us. And number five, he is our priest in heaven. Take a look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. You remember Jesus and when Mary finds him and she's clinging on to him, right? She's like, you're here, you're back, you're resurrected. Oh, I knew it wasn't true. I knew you'd come back. I knew you came. And he says, don't cling to me, woman. <laughs> I don't know if he said woman. But he said, don't cling to me. And it wasn't like a, get off me, you're weird. No, it wasn't like that. He says, don't cling to me. I need to go to the right hand of the Father. Do not cling to me, for I have yet, not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers. By the way, okay, by the way, he never calls them brothers until after the cross. Did you know that? He never calls them brothers. He calls them disciples. He calls them friends. He calls them all kinds of things. He calls Peter, get behind me, Satan. Um, he calls them all kinds of things. But after the cross, the first thing he calls them is brothers. And he says, don't cling to me, Mary. I got to go. There's something theologians call, we don't hear it very often, but there's something that theologians call the session of Christ. You know what the session of Christ is? It's the seating of Christ. Not only did Jesus die, not only was he resurrected, and then did he then ascend to the Father, but once he ascended, he was seated in his place of authority that he purchased on the cross at the right hand of the Father. And the reason that he's there, aside from the fact that he's the preeminent brother, is there because he is our priest and he's there interceding for us in real time, even now, between us and the Father. And he hears our prayers, and he translates them to the Father. He's our priest every moment interceding for you and interceding for me. And he says, Mary, don't cling to me. I have to go do something very important. My work with you is not done. I'm, I'm not done working with you, my brothers and sisters. I'm going to now go be where I need to be, which is at the right hand of the Father, and I'm going to send my spirit to minister to you. Isn't that exciting? Jesus is the perfect brother in that he is also our priest. He's also our priest. If you want to know what that looks like, read John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. It's where Jesus prays for his brothers and sisters. And he's praying like that without ceasing in heaven at the right hand of God for you now. Why? Because you are his brothers and sisters. Okay. Sam, that was all theology. I know, and I really don't apologize for that. I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, man, I'm going to bury him in theology, and I'm not going to give him anything practical. You don't need practical right now. You know what you need? You need to understand how amazing Jesus is. I don't care if I don't give you one application. You've got plenty of applications. You want applications? You've got plenty right now that you're feeling guilty about that you're not doing. 
Should be praying more, should be fasting more, should be doing this, should be doing that. You know what you need? You know what the freedom is found not in applications, the freedom is found in Christ. The freedom is found not in how you need to do something. The freedom is found in that Jesus is the perfect brother to you. That he's done everything necessary for salvation. That's what you need to know tonight. Now, there is application to this, and the application is that he did all of that so that you would know how to be a brother to someone else. If you want to know how to be the family of God, then look at how Jesus was family to us. How was he family to us? Well, take a lesson, four things. Take a lesson from the incarnation. Take a lesson from the incarnation. God didn't stay in heaven. He chose to come down to our level. And in the same way, we need to come down to where people are at. We need to come down and understand where people are coming from within the church. They are our brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. We need to take the time and the love and the care to understand where each other is coming from and get down to each other's level and learn from each other. And we don't do that. We stay where we're at and we get around people that are like us. Take a lesson from Jesus' incarnation. Number two, take a lesson from Jesus' archagos. Take a lesson from the fact that he is the leader He is the one that went before us. What I mean by that is if you want to be a brother, if you want to be a sister to the family of God, then run your race of faith and run it well. You know what we don't need is more know-it-alls in the church. I'm sick of know-it-alls, and I'm one of them. People that have all the answers and know all the right things to say. You know what I really want is substance. I want to look at people's life and go, that person really believes God is real. And they're giving it all for the Lord. And I rarely find that. At the end of my life, I don't want someone to say, wow, Sam Sam knew a lot of things. Sam had all the answers. I want someone to say, Sam lived by faith. And he was an example of faith. What the church needs in 2018 in America is not more know-it-alls. It needs more genuine faith, more pioneers, more archagos, more people that are going to truly run the race of faith, fully sold out for God so that, like Paul, we can say, follow me as I follow Christ, authentically, with substance, Not exterior, doing religious things like the Pharisees, but authentically saying, God, you're real to me in every way. And I want to model to my brothers and my sisters and my spiritual kids what it looks like to be real and authentically all in for God. That's what we need. That's what we need. If our theology does not move us to doxology, which is worship, then it's killing us. It's just making us dry bones. If you don't get done reading Hebrews 2 and studying that Jesus is the perfect brother and want to go worship God, then you're just becoming a know-it-all. We don't need more of those. We need authenticity. We need substance. Our culture is screaming for substance. We are sick of Instagram. Instagram and Pinterest is like rice cakes. It's all fake. It's not real. What we need is substance, people that are really in the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to live for Christ. They're sharing their struggles open about the reality of how hard it is to be a Christian, but the joy that comes with it. That's what we need. That's what Jesus did for us. He was honest about his weakness and his struggle. He prayed in the garden, and he recorded it. God, if there's any other way for this, let it pass from me. He didn't want to drink the cup of wrath. It terrified him. And he was honest. He allowed it to be recorded in the scriptures so that you and I could see his weakness. We needed to see what a brother that really struggled through this thing called faith looked like. 
That's what everyone around you needs. They don't just need your fake and false and phony exteriors. They need substance. They need grit. They need to know what it looks like to live by faith. And it's hard. Can we be honest? If you want to be a brother and a sister to the family of God, lead with authenticity and share what that looks like for you. And talk about stuff that matters. I'm so tired of talking about things that don't matter. I'm so tired of just shallow stuff that means nothing. If this is real, we should be talking about this. If this is real, this should be the most important thing we could possibly read. More important than Fox News, more important than Facebook. I'm not saying those things are evil. I'm saying this is important if this is real to you. If God is real to you, Christ was that example for us. And lastly, if we want to take a lesson from Christ about what it means to be the family, take a, listen, a lesson from his priesthood. He interceded for us. He interceded for us. We don't have time to go there, but there's a verse in Hebrews that I always tell all of our huddle leaders about, and it, and it says specifically that because Christ died for us, stir up one another to good works, not neglecting to meet together. And that word stir up, listen, that word stir up is frustrate. I love that. Don't allow each other to get lukewarm. Don't allow each other to settle into the monotony of the Christian Western evangelical life where Christianity is compartmentalized into the recesses of the back of our minds somewhere. Stir up each other like Christ does every day for you at the right hand of God, sending the Spirit. Stir up each other, being high priests, being priests for one another, encouraging each other in the Lord like Christ did. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. God, thanks for Hebrews 2. There's so much there that we didn't even get to, Lord, but I just pray that everyone here would go and plumb the depths of Hebrews 2, that they would have their appetite wet to, to know more about just exactly who you were, Christ. And Lord, I'm not ashamed to say that you are my brother. In fact, I am proud to say that you are my big brother. And in no way I am equal with you, God, but you have chosen to become like me, to save me because you loved me. Why, Lord? I'm just so glad you did. God, I just pray you would shake us tonight. Lord Jesus, you, you knelt on your, your knees to wash the feet of the disciples to show them that we should do the same. And I pray that we would be looking to be a brother like you were a brother to us. God, show us how to do that. God, we need each other so badly. And whether we recognize it or not, we are family. And every part of the family is necessary, Lord. So I pray that you would activate tonight each of us in our role in this family. You would activate us as priests, as leaders, as pioneers of authentic faith. Lord, I pray that truly, God, we would be an accurate representation of you, Christ, as a whole, not just singularly, but as a whole, as a body. And Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We just love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. Have a great night.